This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Walking by Henry David Thoreau Part 2 Life consists with wildness. The most alive is the wildest. Not yet subdued to man, its presence refreshes him. One who pressed forward incessantly, and never rested from his labors, who grew fast and made infinite demands on life, would always find himself in a new country or wilderness, and surrounded by the raw material of life. He would be climbing over the prostrate stems of primitive forest trees. Hope and the future for me are not in lawns and cultivated fields, not in towns and cities, but in the impervious and quaking swamps. When, formerly, I have analyzed my partiality for some farm which I had contemplated purchasing, I have frequently found that I was attracted solely by a few square rods of impermeable and unfathomable bog, a natural sink in one corner of it. That was the jewel which dazzled me. I derive more of my subsistence from the swamps which surround my native town than from the cultivated gardens in the village. There are no richer parterres to my eyes than the dense beds of dwarf Andromeda, Cassandra Caliculata, which cover these tender places on the earth's surface. Botany cannot go farther than tell me the names of the shrubs which grow there. The high blueberry, panicled Andromeda, lambkill, azalea, and rhodora, all standing in the quaking sphagnum. I often think that I should like to have my house front on this mass of dull red bushes, omitting other flower pots and borders, transplanted spruce and trim box, even graveled walks, to have this fertile spot under my windows, not a few imported barrowfuls of soil only to cover the sand which was thrown out in digging the cellar. Why not put my house, my parlor, behind this plot, instead of behind that meager assemblage of curiosities, that poor apology for a nature and art which I call my front yard. It is an effort to clear up and make a decent appearance when the carpenter and mason have departed, though done as much for the passerby as the dweller within. The most tasteful front yard fence was never an agreeable object of study to me. The most elaborate ornaments, acorn tops or what not, soon wearied and disgusted me. Bring your sills up to the very edge of the swamp, then, though it may not be the best place for a dry cellar, so that there be no access on that side to citizens. Front yards are not made to walk in, but at most through, and you could go in the back way. Yes, though you may think me perverse, if it were proposed to me to dwell in the neighborhood of the most beautiful garden that ever human art contrived, or else a dismal swamp, I would certainly decide for the swamp. How vain, then, have been all your labors, citizens, for me. My spirits infallibly rise in proportion to the outward dreariness. Give me the ocean, the desert, or the wilderness. In the desert, Pure air and solitude compensate for want of moisture and fertility. 
the traveler Burton says of it, your morale improves, you become frank and cordial, hospitable and single-minded. In the desert, spiritous liquors excite only disgust. There is a keen enjoyment in a mere animal existence. They who have been traveling long on the steppes of the Tartary say, On re-entering cultivated lands, the agitation, perplexity, and turmoil of civilization oppressed and suffocated us. The air seemed to fail us, and we felt every moment as if about to die of asphyxia. When I would recreate myself, I seek the darkest wood, the thickest and most interminable and, to the citizen, most dismal swamp. I enter a swamp as a sacred place, a sanctum sanctorum. There is the strength, the marrow of nature. The wildwood covers the virgin mold, and the same soil is good for men and for trees. A man's health requires as many acres of meadow to his prospect as his farm does loads of muck. There are the strong meats on which he feeds. A town is saved, not more by the righteous men in it than by the woods and swamps that surround it. A township where one primitive forest waves above, while another primitive forest rots below, such a town is fitted to raise not only corn and potatoes, but poets and philosophers for the coming ages. In such a soil grew Homer and Confucius and the rest. And out of such a wilderness comes the reformer, eating locusts and wild honey. To preserve wild animals implies generally the creation of a forest for them to dwell in or resort to. So it is with man. A hundred years ago, they sold bark in our streets peeled from our own woods. In the very aspect of those primitive and rugged trees there was, methinks, a tanning principle, which hardened and consolidated the fibers of men's thoughts. Ah! Already I shudder for these comparatively degenerate days of my native village, when you cannot collect a load of bark of good thickness, and we no longer produce tar and turpentine. The civilized nations, Greece, Rome, England, have been sustained by the primitive forests which anciently rotted where they stand. They survive as long as the soil is not exhausted. Alas for human culture! Little is to be expected of a nation when the vegetable mold is exhausted, and it is compelled to make manure of the bones of its fathers. There the poet sustains himself merely by his own superfluous fat, and the philosopher comes down on his marrow bones. It is said to be the task of the American to work the virgin soil, and that agriculture here already assumes proportions unknown everywhere else. I think that the farmer displaces the Indian even because he redeems the meadow, and so makes himself stronger and in some respects more natural. I was surveying for a man the other day a single straight line, 132 rods long, through a swamp at whose entrance might have been written the words which Dante read over the entrance to the infernal regions, Leave all hope, ye that enter, that is, of ever getting out again. 
where at one time I saw my employer actually up to his neck and swimming for his life in his property, though it was still winter. He had another similar swamp, which I could not survey at all, because it was completely under water, and, nevertheless, with regard to a third swamp, which I did survey from a distance, he remarked to me, true to his instincts, that he would not part with it for any consideration on account of the mud which it contained. And that man intends to put a girdling ditch round the hole in the course of forty months, and so redeem it by the magic of his spade. I refer to him only as the type of a class. The weapons with which we have gained our most important victories, which should be handed down as heirlooms from father to son, are not the sword and the lance, but the bushwhack, the turf-cutter, the spade, and the bog-hoe, rusted with the blood of many a meadow, and begrimed with the dust of many a hard-fought field. The very winds blew the Indian's cornfield into the meadow, and pointed out the way which he had not the skill to follow. He had no better implement with which to entrench himself in the land than a clamshell. But the farmer is armed with the plow and spade. In literature, it is only the wild that attracts us. Dullness is but another name for tameness. It is the uncivilized, free, and wild thinking in Hamlet and the Iliad and all the scriptures and mythologies, not learned in the schools, that delights us. As the wild duck is more swift and beautiful than the tame, so is the wild, the mallard thought, which, mid-falling dews, wings its way above the fens. A truly good book is something as natural and as unexpectedly and unaccountably fair and perfect as a wildflower discovered on the prairies of the west or in the jungles of the east. Genius is a light which makes the darkness visible, like the lightning's flash, which perchance shatters the temple of knowledge itself, and not a taper lighted at the hearthstone of the race, which pales before the light of common day. English literature, from the days of the minstrels to the lake poets, Chaucer and Spencer and Milton, and even Shakespeare included, breathes no quite fresh and, in this sense, wild strain. It is an essentially tame and civilized literature, reflecting Greece and Rome. Her wilderness is a greenwood, her wild man a Robin Hood. There is plenty of genial love of nature, but not so much of nature herself. Her chronicles inform us when her wild animals, but not when the wild man in her, became extinct. The science of Humboldt is one thing. Poetry is another thing. The poet today, notwithstanding all the discoveries of science and the accumulated learning of mankind, enjoys no advantage over Homer. Where is the literature which gives expression to nature? He would be a poet who could impress the winds and streams into his service, to speak for him, who nailed words to their primitive senses, as farmers drive down stakes in the spring, which the frost has heaved, 
who derived his words as often as he used them, transplanted them to his page with earth adhering to their roots, whose words were so true and fresh and natural that they would appear to expand like the buds at the approach of spring, though they lay half smothered between two musty leaves in a library. I, to bloom and bear fruit there, after their kind, annually, for the faithful reader, in sympathy with surrounding nature. I do not know of any poetry to quote which adequately expresses this yearning for the wild. Approached from this side, the best poetry is tame. I do not know where to find, in any literature, ancient or modern, any account which contents me of that nature which even I am acquainted. You will perceive that I demand something which no Augustan nor Elizabethan age, which no culture, in short, can give. Mythology comes nearer to it than anything. How much more fertile in nature, at least, has Grecian mythology in its root than English literature? Mythology is the crop which the old world bore before its soil was exhausted, before the fancy and imagination were affected with blight, and which it still bears, wherever its pristine vigor is unabated. All other literatures endure only as the elms which overshadow our houses. But this is like the great dragon-tree of the western isles, as old as mankind, and whether that does or not, will endure as long, for the decay of other literatures makes the soil in which it thrives. The West is preparing to add its fables to those of the East. The valleys of the Ganges, the Nile, and the Rhine, having yielded their crop, it remains to be seen what the valleys of the Amazon, the Plot, the Orinoco, the St. Lawrence, and the Mississippi will produce. Perchance when, in the course of ages, American liberty has become a fiction of the past, as it is to some extent a fiction of the present, the poets of the world will be inspired by American mythology. The wildest dreams of wild men, even, are not the less true, though they may not recommend themselves to the sense which is most common among Englishmen and Americans today. It is not every truth that recommends itself to the common sense. Nature has a place for the wild clematis, as well as for the cabbage. Some expressions of truth are reminiscent, others merely sensible, as the phrase is, others prophetic. Some forms of disease, even, may prophesy forms of health. The geologist has discovered that the figures of serpents, griffins, flying dragons, and other fanciful embellishments of heraldry have their prototypes in the forms of fossil species which were extinct before man was created, and hence indicate a faint and shadowy knowledge of a previous state of organic existence. The Hindus dreamed that the earth rested on an elephant, and the elephant on a tortoise, and the tortoise on a serpent, and though it may be an unimportant coincidence, it will not be out of place here to state that a fossil tortoise has lately been discovered in Asia large enough to support an elephant. I confess that I am partial to these wild fancies, which transcend the order of time and development, 
They are the sublimest recreation of the intellect. The partridge loves peas, but not those that go with her into the pot. In short, all good things are wild and free. There is something in a strain of music, whether produced by an instrument or by the human voice. Take the sound of a bugle in a summer night, for instance, which by its wildness to speak without satire, reminds me of the cries emitted by wild beasts in their native forests. It is so much of their wildness as I can understand. Give me for my friends and neighbors wild men, not tame ones. The wildness of the savage is but a faint symbol of the awful ferity with which good men and lovers meet. I love even to see the domestic animals reassert their native rights. Any evidence that they have not wholly lost their original wild habits and vigor, as when my neighbor's cow breaks out of her pasture early in the spring and boldly swims the river, a cold, gray tide, twenty-five or thirty rods wide, swollen by the melted snow. It is the buffalo crossing the Mississippi. This exploit confers some dignity on the herd in my eyes, already dignified. The seeds of instinct are preserved under the thick hides of cattle and horses, like seeds in the bowels of the earth, an indefinite period. Any sportiveness in cattle is unexpected. I saw one day a herd of a dozen bullocks and cows running about and frisking an unwieldy sport, like huge rats, even like kittens. They shook their heads, raised their tails, and rushed up and down a hill, and I perceived by their horns, as well as by their activity, their relation to the deer tribe. But alas, a sudden loud woe would have dampened their ardor at once, reduced them from venison to beef, and stiffened their sides and sinews like the locomotive. Who but the evil one has cried, Woe, to mankind. Indeed, the life of cattle, like that of many men, is but a sort of locomotiveness. They move aside at a time, and man, by his machinery, is meeting the horse and the ox halfway. Whatever part the whip has touched is thenceforth palsied. Who would ever think of a side of any of the supple cat tribe, as we speak of a side of beef? I rejoice that horses and steers have to be broken before they can be made the slaves of men, and that men themselves have some wild oats still left to sow before they become submissive members of society. Undoubtedly, all men are not equally fit subjects for civilization, and because the majority, like dogs and sheep, are tame by inherited disposition. This is no reason why the others should have their natures broken that they may be reduced to the same level. Men are in the main alike, but they were made several in order that they might be various. If a low use is to be served, one man will do nearly or quite as well as another. If a high one, individual excellence is to be regarded. Any man can stop a hole to keep the wind away, but no other man could serve so rare a use as the author of this illustration did. Confucius says, The skins of the tiger and the leopard, when they are tanned, 
are as the skins of the dog and the sheep tanned. But it is not the part of a true culture to tame tigers, any more than it is to make sheep ferocious. And tanning their skins for shoes is not the best use to which they can be put. When looking over a list of men's names in a foreign language, as of military officers, or of authors who have written on a particular subject, I am reminded once more that there is nothing in a name. The name Menschikov, for instance, has nothing in it to my ears more human than a whisker, and it may belong to a rat. As the names of the Poles and Russians are to us, so are ours to them. It is as if they had been named by the child's rigmarole. Iry, fiery, a cheery, van tittletoltan. I see in my mind a herd of wild creatures swarming over the earth, and to each the herdsman has affixed some barbarous sound in his own dialect. The names of men are, of course, as cheap and meaningless as bows and tray, the name of dogs. Methinks it would be some advantage to philosophy if men were named merely in the gross, as they are known. It would be necessary only to know the genus, and perhaps the race or variety, to know the individual. We are not prepared to believe that every private soldier in a Roman army had a name of his own, because we have not supposed that he had a character of his own. At present, our only true names are nicknames. I knew a boy who, from his peculiar energy, was called Buster by his playmates, and this rightly supplanted his Christian name. Some travelers tell us that an Indian had no name given him at first, but earned it, and his name was his fame, and among some tribes he acquired a new name with every new exploit. It is pitiful when a man bears a name for convenience merely, who has earned neither name nor fame. I will not allow mere names to make distinctions for me, but still see men in herds for all them. A familiar name cannot make a man less strange to me. It may be given to a savage who retains in secret his own wild title earned in the woods. We have a wild savage in us, and a savage name is perchance somewhere recorded as ours. I see that my neighbor, who bears the familiar epithet William, or Edwin, takes it off with his jacket. It does not adhere to him, when asleep or in anger, or aroused by any passion or inspiration. I seem to hear pronounced by some of his kin at such a time his original wild name, in some jaw-breaking or else melodious tongue. Here is this vast, savage, hovering mother of ours, nature, lying all around with such beauty and such affection for her children, as the leopard, and yet we are so early weaned from her breast to society, to that culture which is exclusively an interaction of man on man, a sort of breeding in and in, which produces at most a merely English nobility, a civilization destined to have a speedy limit. In society, in the best institutions of men, it is easy to detect a certain precocity. When we should still be growing children, we are already little men. 
Give me a culture which imports much muck from the meadows, and deepens the soil. Not that which trusts to heating manures, and improved implements and modes of culture only. Many a poor, sore-eyed student that I have heard of would grow faster, both intellectually and physically, if instead of sitting up so very late, he honestly slumbered a fool's allowance. There may be an excess even of informing light. Nietzsche, a Frenchman, discovered actinism, that power in the sun's rays which produces a chemical effect, that granite rocks and stone structures and statues of metal are all alike destructively acted upon during the hours of sunshine, and, but for provisions of nature no less wonderful, would soon perish under the delicate touch of the most subtle of the agencies of the universe. But he observed that those bodies which underwent this change during the daylight possessed the power of restoring themselves to their original conditions during the hours of night, when this excitement was no longer influencing them. Hence it has been inferred that the hours of darkness are as necessary to the inorganic creation as we know night and sleep are to the organic kingdom. Not even does the moon shine every night, but gives place to darkness. I would not have every man, nor every part of a man, cultivated, any more than I would have every acre of earth cultivated. Part will be tillage, but the greater part will be meadow and forest, not only serving an immediate use, but preparing a mold against a distant future by the annual decay of the vegetation which it supports. There are other letters for the child to learn than those which Cadmus invented. The Spaniards have a good term to express this wild and dusky knowledge. Grammatica parda, tawny grammar, a kind of mother wit derived from that same leopard to which I have referred. We have heard of a society for the diffusion of useful knowledge. It is said that knowledge is power and the like. Methinks there is equal need of a society for the diffusion of useful ignorance, what we will call beautiful knowledge, a knowledge useful in a higher sense. For what is most of our boasted so-called knowledge, but a conceit that we know something, which robs us of the advantage of our actual ignorance? What we call knowledge is often our positive ignorance, ignorance our negative knowledge. By long years of patient industry and reading of the newspapers, for what are the libraries of science but files of newspapers, a man accumulates a myriad facts, lays them up in his memory, and then, when in some spring of his life he saunters abroad into the great fields of thought, he as it were, goes to grass like a horse, and leaves all his harness behind in the stable. I would say to the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge, sometimes, go to grass. You have eaten hay long enough. The spring has come with its green crop. The very cows are driven to their country pastures before the end of May. Though I have heard of one unnatural farmer who kept his cow in the barn and fed her on hay all the year round. 
so frequently, the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge treats its cattle. A man's ignorance sometimes is not only useful, but beautiful, while his knowledge, so-called, is oftentimes worse than useless, besides being ugly. Which is the best man to deal with? He who knows nothing about a subject, and, what is extremely rare, knows that he knows nothing, or he who really knows something about it, but thinks that he knows all. My desire for knowledge is intermittent, but my desire to bathe my head in atmospheres unknown to my feet is perennial and constant. The highest that we can attain to is not knowledge, but sympathy with intelligence. I do not know that this higher knowledge amounts to anything more definite than a novel and grand surprise on a sudden revelation of the insufficiency of all that we called knowledge before. A discovery that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in our philosophy. It is the lighting up of the mist by the sun. Man cannot know in any higher sense than this, any more than he can look serenely and with impunity in the face of the sun. You will not perceive that as perceiving a particular thing, say the Chaldean oracles. There is something servile in the habit of seeking after a law which we may obey. We may study the laws of matter at and for our convenience, but a successful life knows no law. It is an unfortunate discovery, certainly, that of a law which binds us where we did not know before that we were bound. Live free, child of the mist, and with respect to knowledge, we are all children of the mist. The man who takes the liberty to live is superior to all the laws, by virtue of his relation to the lawmaker. That is active duty, says the Vishnu Purana, which is not for our bondage. That is knowledge which is for our liberation. All other duty is good only unto wariness. All other knowledge is only the cleverness of an artist. It is remarkable how few events or crises are in our histories, how little exercised we have been in our minds, how few experiences we have had. I would fain be assured that I am growing apace and rankly, though my very growth disturb this dull equanimity, though it be with struggle through long, dark, muggy nights or seasons of gloom. It would be well if all our lives were a divine tragedy even, instead of this trivial comedy or farce. Dante, Bunyan, and others appear to have been exercised in their minds more than we. They were subjected to a kind of culture such as our district schools and colleges do not contemplate. Even Muhammad, though many may scream at his name, had a good deal more to live for, I, and to die for, than they have commonly. When, at rare intervals, some thought visits one, as perchance he is walking on a railroad, then indeed the cars go by without his hearing them. But soon, by some inexorable law, our life goes by and the cars return. Gentle breeze, that wanderest unseen, and bendest the thistles 
round lawyer of storms, traveller of the windy glens, why hast thou left my ear so soon? While almost all men feel an attraction drawing them to society, few are attracted strongly to nature. In their reaction to nature, men appear to me, for the most part, notwithstanding their arts, lower than the animals. It is not often a beautiful relation, as in the case of animals. How little appreciation of the beauty of the landscape there is among us. We have to be told that the Greeks called the world beauty or order, but we do not see clearly why they did so, and we esteem it at best only a curious philological fact. For my part, I feel that with regard to nature, I live a sort of border life, on the confines of a world into which I make occasional and transient forays only, and my patriotism and allegiance to the state into whose territories I seem to retreat are those of a moss trooper. Unto a life which I call natural, I would gladly follow even a will-o'-the-wisp through bogs and sloughs unimaginable, but no moon nor firefly has shown me the causeway to it. Nature is a personality, so vast and universal that we have never seen one of her features. The walker in the familiar fields which stretch around my native town sometimes finds himself in another land than is described by their owner's deeds, as it were some faraway field on the confines of the actual concord, where her jurisdiction ceases, and the idea which the word concord suggests ceases to be suggested. These farms which I have myself surveyed, these bounds which I have set up, appear dimly still, as through a mist. But they have no chemistry to fix them. They fade from the surface of the glass, and the picture, which the painter painted, stands out dimly from beneath. The world with which we are commonly acquainted leaves no trace, and it will have no anniversary. I took a walk on Spalding's farm the other afternoon. I saw the setting sun lighting up the opposite side of a stately pine wood. Its golden rays straggled into the aisles of the wood as into some noble hall. I was impressed, as if some ancient and altogether admirable and shining family had settled there in that part of the land called Concord, unknown to me, to whom the sun was servant, who had not gone into society in the village, who had not been called on. I saw their park, their pleasure ground, beyond through the wood, in Spalding's cranberry meadow. The pines furnished them with gables as they grew. Their house was not obvious to vision. The trees grew through it. I do not know whether I heard the sounds of a suppressed hilarity or not. They seem to recline on the sunbeams. They have sons and daughters. They are quite well. The farmer's cart path, which leads directly through their hall, does not in the least put them out, as the muddy bottom of a pool is sometimes seen through the reflected skies. They never heard of Spalding, and do not know that he is their neighbor. Notwithstanding, I heard him whistle as he drove his team through the house. Nothing can equal the serenity of their lives. Their coat of arms is simply a lichen. I saw it painted on the pines and oaks. Their attics were in the tops of the trees. 
They are of no politics. There was no noise of labor. I did not perceive that they were weaving or spinning. Yet I did detect, when the wind lulled, and hearing was done away, the finest imaginable sweet musical hum, as of a distant hive in May, which perchance was the sound of their thinking. They had no idle thoughts, and no one without could see their work, for their industry was not as in knots and excrescences embayed. But I find it difficult to remember them. They fade irrevocably out of my mind, even now while I speak, and endeavor to recall them and recollect myself. It is only after a long and serious effort to recollect my best thoughts that I become again aware of their cohabitancy. If it were not for such families as this, I think I should move out of Concord. We are accustomed to say in New England that few and fewer pigeons visit us every year. Our forests furnish no mast for them. So, it would seem, few and fewer thoughts visit each growing man from year to year. For the grove in our minds is laid waste, sold to feed unnecessary fires of ambition, or sent to mill and there is scarcely a twig left for them to perch on. They no longer build nor breed with us. In some more genial season, perchance, a faint shadow flits across the landscape of the mind, cast by the wings of some thought in its vernal or autumnal migration. But, looking up, we are unable to detect the substance of the thought itself. Our winged thoughts are turned to poultry. They no longer soar, and they attain only to a Shanghai and Koshin China grandeur. Those great thoughts, those great men you hear of. We hug the earth. How rarely we mount. Methinks we might elevate ourselves a little more. We might climb a tree, at least. I found my account in climbing a tree once. It was a tall white pine on the top of a hill. And though I got well pitched, I was well paid for it, for I discovered new mountains in the horizon which I had never seen before. So much more of the earth and the heavens. I might have walked about the foot of the tree for three score years and ten, and yet I certainly should never have seen them. But above all, I discovered around me, it was near the end of June, on the ends of the topmost branches only, a few minute and delicate red cone-like blossoms, the fertile flower of the white pine looking heavenward. I carried straightway to the village the topmost spire, and showed it to stranger jurymen who walked the streets, for it was court week, and to farmers and lumber-dealers and wood-choppers and hunters, and not one had ever seen the like before, but they wondered as at a star dropped down. Tell of ancient architects finishing their works on the tops of columns as perfectly as on the lower and more visible parts. Nature has from the first expanded the minute blossoms of the forest only towards the heavens, above men's heads, and unobserved by them. We see only the flowers that are under our feet in the meadows. The pines have developed their delicate blossoms on the highest twigs of the wood every summer for ages as well as over the heads of nature's red children as of her white ones. 
yet scarcely a farmer or hunter in the land has ever seen them. Above all, we cannot afford not to live in the present. He is blessed over all mortals who loses no moment of the passing life in remembering the past. Unless our philosophy hears the cock crow in every barnyard within our horizon, it is belated. That sound commonly reminds us we are growing rusty and antique in our employments and habits of thought. His philosophy comes down to a more recent time than ours. There is something suggested by it that is a newer testament, the gospel according to this moment. He has not fallen astern. He has got up early and kept up early, and to be where he is is to be in season, in the foremost rank of time. It is an expression of the health and soundness of nature, a brag for all the world, healthiness as of a spring burst forth, a new fountain of the muses, to celebrate this last instant of time. Where he lives no fugitive slave laws are passed. Who has not betrayed his master many times since he last heard that note? The merit of this bird's strain is in its freedom from all plaintiveness. The singer can easily move us to tears or to laughter, but where is he who can excite in us a pure morning joy? When in doleful dumps, breaking the awful stillness of our wooden sidewalk on a Sunday, or perchance a watcher in the house of morning, I hear a cockerel crow far or near. I think to myself, there is one of us, well, at any rate, and with a sudden gush return to my senses. We had a remarkable sunset, one day last November. I was walking in a meadow, the source of a small brook, when the sun at last, just before setting, after a cold, gray day, reached a clear stratum in the horizon, and the softest, brightest morning sunlight fell on the dry grass and on the stems of the trees in the opposite horizon and on the leaves of the shrub oaks on the hillside, while our shadows stretched long over the meadow eastward, as if we were only motes in its beams. It was such a light as we would not have imagined a moment before, and the air was so warm and serene that nothing was wanting to make a paradise of that meadow. When we reflected that this was not a solitary phenomenon, never to happen again, but that it would happen forever and ever, an infinite number of evenings, and cheer and reassure the latest child that walked there, it was more glorious still. The sun sets on some retired meadow, where no house is visible, with all the glory and splendor that it lavishes on cities, and perchance as it has never set before, where there is but a solitary marsh hawk to have its wings gilded by it, or only a musquash looks out from his cabin, and there is some little black-veined brook in the midst of the marsh, just beginning to meander, winding slowly round a decaying stump. We walked in so pure and bright a light, gilding the withered grass and leaves, so softly and serenely bright, I thought I had never bathed in such a golden flood, without a ripple or a murmur to it. The west side of every wood and rising ground gleamed like the boundary of Elysium, and the sun on our backs seemed like a gentle herdsman driving us home at evening. So we sauntered toward the Holy Land, 
till one day the sun shall shine more brightly than ever he has done, shall perchance shine into our minds and hearts, and light up our whole lives with a great awakening light, as warm and serene and golden as on a bankside in autumn. End Part 2 of Walking by Henry David Thoreau This recording is in the public domain.